You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. We are in Revelation chapter 14, the end of it, and we're hoping to do chapter 15. So if you remember, we are sort of approaching the end of Revelation now, as in things are starting to really heat up towards the final judgments before we move into the kingdom in the last few chapters. Last week, we saw this angelic messenger flying in mid-heaven who was preaching the eternal gospel to the earth. And we talked about this being really the final chance for those who are on the earth at this time. The end is approaching very quickly. And I gave you that illustration of the Titanic evangelist, that man, John Harper, who went down on the Titanic and was known, he jumped into the water, was pleading with everyone to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because their time was very short. And for me, I still like that as an example of kind of where we are in the book of Revelation now. So that's what we looked at last time, and we're going to pick up the the last few verses of chapter 14. Last week, we also saw the fate of those who were worshipping the beast. It said that they will find no rest forever and ever, whereas those who find their rest in the Lord, although most likely killed in this period of history, they will enter into eternal rest forever and ever And that is the difference between the two. Now we pick up the text in chapter 14, verse 14. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. So now we see another amazing scene at the end of the age. And again, we have that word, behold, it is one that the author wants us to pay attention to. And as with most of the book of Revelation, the imagery from these scenes is straight from the Old Testament. If you're an astute Bible student, you may recognize the phrase there, one like a son of man. That is your connection. That is a a text from the book of Daniel. That's where Jesus is called, one like a son of man. I'll read it to you. It's Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And it's no surprise that we have a link with that text because in the Daniel passage, it is a picture of Jesus being given the kingdom where the world is handed over to him. And that is pretty much what we are reading about now in the book of Revelation. So in Daniel 7, it reads like this. I kept looking in the night visions, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This is the same son of man that we're reading about now in Revelation, who is about to do the final reaping because he has the authority to take the kingdom, and soon we will see that set up. But notice what it says about this one in Revelation. It says he has a golden crown on his head. This, of course, is indicating royalty, but it does present a very fascinating contrast that we should ponder for a moment. The word for crown there is the exact same word used in the Greek that was also used for the crown he wore at his first coming. But do you remember that crown? That was a crown of thorns, and it was a crown of mockery. It was a crown that really represented the sinful nature of humanity being placed upon Jesus, and it was placed on him as a taunt, basically, by the Roman soldiers. Let me read to you that text, Matthew 27:28. They stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, 
and after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they knelt before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Notice what's going on here. You see, they are putting on him all of the things that a king should have, a crown and a reed in his hand, except they're doing it in a mocking tone, and they're taunting him. They spat on him, they took the reed, began to beat him on his head, and after they'd mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off, put his own garments back on, and led him away to crucify him. That, you see, is the first crown that he wore. Those who rejected and mocked his kingly authority, completely unaware that at that time he had voluntarily laid down his kingly authority, and the king allowed himself to be utterly humiliated, to be stripped naked, to be beaten, to be mocked, publicly, knowing that at any moment, in an instant, he could call down a legion of angels to destroy those people. But he did not. What was it that constrained him at that moment? That's what we need to ask ourselves. Quite simply, the answer is his love for mankind. Such undeserved grace, as we call it, undeserved love, is really the mark of a great king. That is someone that people will follow. History testifies to that. Even to this day, millions follow him. Millions will until the end. That is the mark of a great king, one who is willing to humble himself for the sake of his people, to take that sort of treatment when he did not need to in many ways. This is why one day, as we heard, he will be the king of kings and the lord of lords, because only someone with a character like that is really worthy and fit to rule. Yet we also know that one day there will be a day of reckoning that comes, a day of judgment, because this one who is so holy, this one who took the sin of the world, there must be a judgment. And as we prepare for the kingdom, there must be a way to make sure that none of those things enter in to that kingdom as it begins. And this is what we're going to look at in this section here. This is the scene before us. You notice he has not only a crown on his head, but he also has a sickle in his hand. It says, and a sharp sickle in his hand. The sickle was a tool of a reaper. It speaks to us of a harvest time. This is obviously what they would harvest crops with. But here it is obviously speaking about a harvest of people at this time. It is a harvest in judgment. So another angel comes out of the temple and announces that it is time for the reaping to begin. Now there's debate here because some people worry about my identification of the one like a son of man being Jesus Christ. I don't think there's any debate about it. The, the link is clearly to the book of Daniel, as I explained, those two texts linking up. But some people argue that it can't be Jesus because he seems to be taking orders from an angel, and Jesus wouldn't take orders from an angel. But for me, it really seems to be just nitpicking. It's clearly, Jesus is not taking orders like he can't act without. It's clearly just an example of both the Son of God and the holy angels in God's service presenting and doing things in an orderly manner and it's the time the angel announces it, Jesus follows through. I don't think there's an authority command structure going on there, it's just the right timing in God's timetable, so don't worry about that. But it says, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. The hour has come. And this is an important phrase, because for all through our existence, when we read really from the book of Acts onwards, this time, or, or even before that really, this is the time, the age of grace, it's often called, isn't it? The time where we see the long-suffering, the mercy of God, and the grace extended to mankind, the call for repentance. But this is telling us here that that is now finally coming to an end. We've even seen right up until this moment in the last chapter, God still had one more try. He sent his angel out to preach the gospel over the whole earth. This was his final attempt, but now it is done. What we read about in 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, 
but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That patience is done. Not that it it wasn't there, it was there, it's been there all, all the history that we know, but now, finally, it has to come to an end at a certain point. This is why it is called the end of the age. It is the end of the age of this grace, really. The time where good and evil have been allowed to coexist together, which is our age, is coming to an end. There will be a separation, and that separation will be in preparation for the kingdom. Jesus taught on this often. Matthew 13, verse 47. The kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is where we are now in the book of Revelation. The harvest of the earth is ripe, and the word ripe there it has to say the, the actual connotation of being overripe, as in bursting full. You know, fruit gets squishy and you squish it and everything comes out. That's the, that's the imagery here. It is full and ready to be reaped. His patience cannot go on any longer. It is gone to that point now. So let's carry on in verse 17 of Revelation. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. And then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden down outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Now we see some other angels involved in this reaping, just like we said, we, we just read Jesus' words that angels would be involved in this reaping at the end of time. And they are told to begin reaping. I want to focus in on verse 19 for a moment, the winepress of the wrath of God. We've talked about this a little bit pre- previously. This imagery is found throughout the Bible always associated with the end of the age, the second coming. The prophet Joel saw this. As you read these texts in the Old Testament, you'll notice this winepress theme comes up. Joel said, Joel chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe, and come tread, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. You see almost identical language there that we see here. This is again where Revelation, like I always say, Revelation is always drawing on these Old Testament texts. But if you notice, it says the Valley of Jehoshaphat. That is identified with the Kidron Valley, which is just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Now, I'll come back to that in a moment, because that goes against something that I've said in previous studies, and I'll explain that to you. If you're familiar with the famous hymn, the American Civil War anthem, the battle hymn of the Republic, or we call it, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He's trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. You know that song? It's an old assembly song, isn't it? That's where this is getting that text from. This is the the winepress motif that we have here. But notice it says the winepress was trodden outside the city. Now, usually when you have the city mentioned in Revelation, it's either one of two places, Babylon or Jerusalem. And this is referring to Jerusalem here. Now, if you remember a few studies back, 
when we were talking about this wine press from the book of Isaiah, and I gave you an understanding about where the second coming takes place. Do you remember that? And we said, yes, he touches down on the Mount of Olives, but it seems to imply that he first treads the winepress of the wrath of God in this place called Edom that we talked about, this refuge where the Jewish people will be fleeing during the tribulation. Let me remind you just by reading this text, Isaiah 63, verses 1 to 3. It says, Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Bozrah? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength, it is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save clearly a reference to the Lord Jesus in his second coming. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? And he says, I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I trod them in my anger, trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments and stained with my remnant. There's an impressive scene here that we have of Christ coming uh, to defeat the enemies of Antichrist who are trying to destroy his people at this time, but the location here is clearly given as Edom which is farther south of the Dead Sea area, whereas Joel seemed to imply that this was in the Kidron Valley outside Jerusalem. These are two different locations, so what is going on here? Now, really, the answer is one of those places where I'll say both are actually correct, and it shapes us in how we think about this issue of the the Battle of Armageddon. It's not just one particular battle, it's a campaign and you see quite a lot of different things happening here at this time. Basically, let's read verse 20, and then I'll get into this more. It says, And the winepress was trodden outside the city. The blood came up from the winepress up to the horses' bridles for a distance of 200 miles. It, may, it might say like 160 furloughs in some of your Bibles, but it, it's, the distance roughly is 200 miles. So what this is basically saying is that the winepress, the battle front, where the Lord comes as a mighty warrior would extend over that sort of distance. Now, interestingly, if you take the Battle of Armageddon, the Valley of Jezreel, up in the north of Israel, and then you go to the Kidron Valley in the middle of Jerusalem, and then you go all the way down into Edom of Bosra. I did have a picture on a map. I forgot to send it to Alex. But basically, if you were looking at it, you'd have the Dead Sea, Edom down here, Jerusalem, and then the Valley of Jezreel. So it's kind of like you could draw a line all the way up. And the text seemed to imply, when you follow them through logically, that the wine press will start down here and it works its way up, basically. All of this is the battle front of this wine press of the wrath of God. And interestingly, that is roughly approximately 200 miles in distance before you get when you go through all of those locations there. So that, I believe, is really what this is referring to here. So both of those things are right. The wine press starts down here because that's where the Jewish people are hiding and it works its way up to Jerusalem. And when the Lord has defeated all of those things, he touches down on the Mount of Olives. And that is the sequence that we seem to have. You can't be overly dogmatic about it, but for me, that is the one that best makes sense. So this is what we have happening here, the consummation of all things in this final battle. Let's move on straight away into chapter 15 of Revelation, please. Now, in chapter 15, John goes back and he gives us more additional details. You might have noticed that really since chapter 12, he's been giving us specific details. Chapter 12, 13, and 14, he's been expanding on different things. It's a very Hebrew way of writing prophecy. Sometimes you review things, sometimes you repeat things, sometimes you enlarge on different areas, and that's what we have going on in the book of Revelation. So let's read verse 1. He says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. 
So now John sees another sign, just like he did in Revelation 12, the sign of the woman in the sky, remember. It says this sign is great and marvellous. The word really means beyond human comprehension. These seven angels have the seven final plagues, which are the bowl judgments. Do you remember Revelation is structured, the six seals, the six, and then it moves on to the six trump, seven trumpets rather, and then the seven vials, the bowls of judgment. And then it says that is the last. God's wrath is finished. It is complete. With these final judgments, the wrath of God is complete. That is the final curtain, as we could say. After that, the show is over and we move on to that next era of history. Verse 2, And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding the harps of God. I believe we have a vision here of something the author cannot properly describe. He is describing the heavenly landscape. If you try and imagine what a sea of glass mixed with fire, we can't really do that, can we? I think what he's trying to describe is something that he doesn't have words for, and that is in many ways a glorious description that we have there. But what he does see is the victorious believers of the tribulation there, most likely those who had been killed under the regime of the beast, those who it says in Revelation 12 did not love their life even when faced with death. In Revelation 7, we saw the, the martyrs under the altar, most likely these people here now, and they are seen victorious at this time. It is important to note they are standing on the heavenly landscape, they're victorious in death over the enemy, and they are about to bring heaven's great chorus of praise to a rousing crescendo. That is really what we have going on here. And let's read the song that they sing. It says, They sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, verse 3, sorry, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvellous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now this is an amazing song, and again we would do well to really contemplate its words here, as we should with all songs in Scripture, but this one particularly. When all is said and done, when all the bowls, the judgments, the wrath is complete, Satan is bound, his enemies gone, those who would follow him cast into the fire, what is left? Praise. Praise song to God the Almighty. Now this is an interesting title too, and I really was thinking about this during the week, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. It's an unusual connection to make. It seems to connect the ancient song of Moses that we find in Exodus chapter 15 with this heavenly song that we see here called the song of the Lamb. Now if you remember, I'll read to you a couple of verses. Exodus 15 is a very long chapter, I won't read the whole thing. But it goes back to the time, the first Passover ever, the time when the Jewish people were spared the angel of death because they put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts and then they were given freedom to leave Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea and they came out, armies of Pharaoh following after them, the Pharaoh destroyed in the sea. And then when they reached the other side, the armies were defeated, they sang the song of Moses and it begins like this. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, I will praise him. My Father's God, I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. 
See, this is a strong verse. We don't often sing about things like that, do we? But this is a victory. This is a battle hymn. It's a victory hymn that we have going on here. That's why it mentions the destruction of Pharaoh's army in the sea. That's why it calls the Lord a warrior. And it is also a song of praise. Now, why are these two things linked here in the book of Revelation? Something to do with the historical era of the Israelites and then this future era. Now, Obviously, the themes are quite obvious, that we can see the, the parallels in many ways, but it's something even more fundamental to that. As I was really trying to think about this, the Song of Moses, you might not have realized, but that song in Exodus 15, that is the first ever song recorded in the Bible. Now, we know the angels praised when creation happened and things like that, but we don't have that recorded for us. This is the first song that was ever recorded for us in the Bible. And the one we just read in Revelation, that is actually the last song we actually have recorded for us in the Bible. Now, we know there'll be more songs, obviously, in, the, in eternity, but the two that we actually have recorded for us, this is both the first and the last. And both of these songs are praising the Lamb as the focus for his victory. Not only because he is worthy, it states that, but his victory over the enemies of God at this time. Pharaoh there being the type just like the Antichrist in the future and his armies being the ones who God destroyed at this time. He threw their armies into the sea and here we've just seen he treads the winepress of the wrath of God. Both of those things ended in a hymn of praise to God. Everything, and I like the thought of that, it's an amazing thought when you think about it, bookends of the history of God's redemptive saga of history basically, bookends of praise on either side. In between those two songs of praise, those two songs glorifying God as king and God as warrior, lies everything else, literally everything else in the Bible. The entire narrative of the Bible, the wrapping up of all things, sandwiched between these two hymns of praise, both of which are declaring God as victor and God has won. We need to remember that when we study the book of Revelation. We need to remember that, I think, as we look around now and we see the plots and the schemes of the evil one, really, we see what he's doing to the kids, to the schools, to the nations, all these different things that we can look around and you can get very angry, concerned, disheartened. You don't know how to move forward with that. And this is the time why I believe we have this here at this moment in Revelation. It's a reminder, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, that at the beginning and the end, Christ is victorious. He will wing. Everything else is just the in-between thing. And by the time we get to the song of the Lamb, it's all done. The devil's plans have been destroyed once and for all, and all that is left is for us to praise God. And that is it. And that, I believe, if you don't take anything else, take that away with you today. But notice also, one of those songs was sung on earth. The other one is sung in heaven. And I find that important. There is a connection between what the people of the Lord are singing on earth and to what is sung in heaven. Our praise here on earth is important. It is a witness and a testimony to who he is from the mouth of his people. And it is connected to the heavenly chorus. Worship was always front and centre in the life of ancient Israel. It went out before the battle. Remember, we've studied that before. The choir went out before the army, before the warriors. That's very important. The temple where God's presence was, surrounded by praise, choir all the time. It was structured. They had a whole tribe of people that were dedicated to praise. And that is important for us here as we do this. And it will be like that for all eternity. So I'd remind you to pray for our worship leaders that we have. That is a high calling to lead the people in worship. And as we praise, as people who are led in worship, we are entering in and connecting with heaven in some ways. 
Praise on earth is connected to praise in heaven. Now notice really what it is that holds these two songs together. It is the Lamb, the Lamb of God. The Passover Lamb for Moses, the blood that saved them, the Lamb of God in Revelation. One of the things we've seen so often, the Lamb as it was slain, is focused in Revelation all the same time as he's pictured as a warrior, as a king, as a coming, coming soldier, basically. He's still always the Lamb that was slain. And these two things must be held together. The Passover lamb served as the archetype for the Lamb of God all those years later, the Messiah. And here now, we are in the final, final, final days of the end of the age in Revelation. And we see these two songs beautifully put together, the first and the last song ever recorded in the Bible. It says that the beast, remember, the Antichrist and his armies, was given a mouth to speak wondrous things. People were in awe after the beast. He had, after the beast. He had such great skills at doing that, getting people to follow him. But in the end, it is Christ. It was the Lamb who has the last word. And that last word is a song of victory, the song of the Lamb. Let's read it again. Great and marvellous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and bow and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. It's wonderful. This is a victory hymn that begins by asserting that the works of the Lord are great and marvellous. There's so much we can learn from this hymn here. The book of Job 5.9 says, God is the one who does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. Wonders without number. And as you read the scriptures, you'll notice there are a number of things that are given these descriptions as being wonder, wonderful, without wonder. His creative power. Read the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. A God who can just speak things, the heavens, into existence. The complexity of the design of life just speaks it out of his mind and it is done. The human soul, the beauty of creation, all of these things are described as being marvellous and wonderful. His intervention in human history is often described this way. The miracles that he did, the parting of the Red Sea, most significantly for us, the Lord of glory stepping out of heaven, clothing himself in human flesh to come and die as a sacrifice on the cross at the hands of the Roman emperor, the king who humbled himself in such a way so that one day he would be exalted. This is the most great and marvellous thing we can ever contemplate. And what do they do? They sing about it. They praise him for it. They praise God for his works. And then it says, righteous and true are your ways. They sing about his ways. They sing about his works and they sing about his ways. This is very instructive for us. They are righteous and true. This is in contrast, really, in the book of Revelation to all the falsehood, the lying wonders and signs that the enemy is doing at this time. And here we have one who is righteous and true. He is always righteous and true. We need to remember this. He acts righteously and truthfully all of the time without exception. And there's no one else who can do that. As the psalmist Ethan the Ezraite puts it, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. There will never be another throne like that. There never has been and there never will be. It is reserved for him alone. Notice the descriptors we have of God in this hymn also. It, just in these first two verses, it calls him the Lord, all capitals, holy name of God, revealed to Moses in the burning bush, speaks of the one who is eternal, who will be, who is, and who will always be. That is what that name means, the eternal one. Then it also calls him the Almighty, 
the one who has power over the hosts of heaven, the one who is a warrior, who is the king, the warrior king, the priest warrior king. And then it also says king of the nations, king of the nations. Now it may read king of the saints there in some of your Bibles, it's better translated king of the nations, both are true, so I'm not, not fussed about it. It's Think how theologically rich these titles are for him. And it again tells us something very specific. Our songs and praise and worship to God should be theologically informed. Because if we do not have a proper picture of who God is, why would we sing to him in such a way? Are we singing to raise our own emotions or are we singing to give praise and glorify his name? Those two things can be very different. They can be combined beautifully, but they can be different if you don't have these titles, you don't think about who God is. These singers here, glorifying him for his works, for his ways, obviously understood who he was in ways probably that we can't even imagine. But, you know, let's pray the Lord reveals himself to us continually until we see him as he is. And then in verse 4 it says, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you. Now this is almost a direct quote from the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 10 verse 7 says it like this, There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and great is your name in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? That's why I believe it's King of the nations, as it should be said there, it's linking to this text. Indeed, it is your due. For among all the wise men of the nations, and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. It's the same themes, glorify your name, he is mighty, he is the only one worthy of all these things. And then they sing, and they just sing about it. So they sing about his works, they sing about his ways, and then the next part, they sing about his worship. God and God alone is holy. It's what they sing there. Now we are holy by proxy, if I could put it like that, in the sense that he made a way for us to be blameless and holy through his son. And by being in his son, as the Apostle Paul puts it, we have that position, that is how we enter into heaven, but it is his, not ours, if I could put it like that. And we must remember that. Another way to say this, you are holy, you could say you are matchless, you are incomparable, peerless, unequaled, unparalleled, unrivaled. There's no other king like that. This is who it is. Notice the kingdom element here too. This is in preparation, remember, the end of the age moving into his rule. It says all the nations will come and worship. So this is again referring to nations. This tells us something of the geopolitical structure of Messiah's kingdom. Psalm 86, verse 9 and 10 echoes this theme. It says, All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous deeds, you alone are God. Almost identical, these texts. They're all just highlighting the same features. So they sing about his worship, his ways and his works, and then finally they sing about his wrath. Look at that verse, the final bit in Revelation. It says, For your righteous acts have been revealed. It may read, for your judgments have been revealed there. Same word, both are equally correctly translated. The righteous acts are his judgment. The point, the point is, his judgment is righteous at this stage in history. Specifically at the end here, all unrighteousness will be removed. This is what the reaping is referring to. And the remainder are those who have responded in faith and glorify his name. Now what a song of victory this is. Now really we could say obviously every song of the believer is one of victory. We only have the right to sing because he won the victory for us and we are saved in him. But this is something peculiar in the sense that it's taking place right at the end of the age. But what can we take from this for us today? I believe it gives us a wonderful set of principles for our worship, 
for our corporate worship, but for your private worship too, for your prayer time and for every time you're really thinking about God, we should think of these things, his works, how great and marvellous they are, what he has done in history, recorded for us in the Bible, and also what he has done in your life for you personally that only you may know of. You give God praise and you glorify his name for that. You glorify his works and then you glorify his ways. This is different, his ways. This is a wonderful thing. Study the life of Jesus the Messiah. Now we're studying him here as the King of Kings, the glorified Lord. That's vitally important. Go back to the Gospels and study him as the man who walked the shores of Galilee when he was a human flesh. And you'll see the other side of that picture and you'll have the wonderful full-orbed vision that we get of Messiah in the Scriptures. Sing of his works, sing of his ways, sing of his worship. And worship, obviously, remember the real meaning is the one who is worthy to receive worship. Think of those theological titles. Understand who he really is. Don't take your understanding of him from the culture, from the world, from how you may want him to be after you have maybe watered him down a bit. Take it from the scriptures, pure and clean, and don't change it. Accept it for what it is and bow down before him. And then finally, his wrath. And we don't often think about praising him for his wrath, do we? But we must, because without his wrath, you do not get the kingdom. Because without that final judgment, that removing of all iniquity, that defeating of the ones who do evil, the father of lies, you will not get the time of the kingdom. So these things are necessary. And as you do that, remember, it was Jesus who drank the cup of God's wrath for us, that we would not do this. So as you sing of it, you give thanks for that as well. This is everything that this song reminds us. Now I want to point out one more thing about this song to you before we finish up and close. Let me read it to you one more time. Great and marvellous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Your, 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 you, you. What was the focus of this group? They were so utterly focused and consumed on Jesus in their lives that led them probably to death, but also in their worship. They were consumed with Jesus. He was their ultimate focus in life. And I believe that was their key really for getting through the time of tribulation. That is also our key for getting through this time that we are in now for all the things that we encounter in our lives too. We must have Jesus as the focused. Let's finish up these final few verses. Verse 5 now, it says, After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened, and the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chests with golden sashes. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. You get that Greek phrase translated as after these things. We've seen it a few times in Revelation. It's almost like a subject change or a transition. He uses it. So now after this wonderful hymn of victory praise, he rejoins almost the, the heavenly scene that we see going on here in the final stages. And here we see the final preparation being made now for these bowls of wrath to be poured out until completion. 
We see the four living creatures that we met in the first few chapters involved in this now too. They hand over these bowls of wrath to the angels and we will see what happens. The next chapter is all about these bowls of wrath. But I want to just focus on one last point and then we will close. It says no one was able to enter at this point. Now this is a very unusual phrase because through Jesus Christ in the age of grace access to heaven has always been available to those who would repent and believe. And we see this heavenly scene here and it almost seems that as this final wrath, as the angel, the final, final chance for all to repent now, heaven seems to be closed for entry at this point. The Shekinah glory of God comes, fills the temple, the heavenly sanctuary, so that no more access can be made. It's almost like a mystery in, in, the, in the, the courts of God here that we see this final bowls of wrath being poured out. And quite understanding what it is, it's hard to do, but it should remind us of our place here now on this earth. Because we know that everyone will either drink of one of two cups. They're the only two options for all of mankind. One, the cup of the new covenant in his blood that was poured out for the remission of sins for many, that cup will lead to eternal life. And that is, you enter that, you drink that by repentance and faith, and you trust that you are placed in him, you are made holy and blameless in him, and that is the power of the gospel, and you will be singing those victory songs with the Lamb forever and ever, having rest in him. The other cup is the cup of God's wrath. Jesus drank it for us so we wouldn't have to take it, but there will be those who refuse, and these are the ones we're reading about in Revelation. They are the ones that follow the beast. These are the ones that die without receiving the Lord Jesus as their saviour. They will drink the cup of the wrath of God. They are the only two options for us. So today, I'd remind you really, like the author to the book of Hebrews reminded his listeners, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. As Paul said, for today is the day of salvation. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.